All right. Hello. Check, check, check. Once you've met someone, you can go ahead and take a seat, but only once you've met someone. Hey, everyone. Uh, good morning. Welcome to The Exchange. So glad you guys are with us this morning. My name is Josiah. If I haven't met you yet, I'd love to meet you after. Just get to know you a bit, but uh, welcome. We are currently in the Gospel of Mark. We've been going through the Gospel of Mark. It's like our seventh or eighth week now. So if you need a Bible, raise your hand. We would love to get you a Bible so you can follow along with us. Uh, but we are in the Gospel of Mark. We have some guys and gals passing out Bibles. So raise your hand. Love to get you a Bible so you can follow along. So we've been making our way through the Gospel of Mark. We are looking at this book as Jesus on mission. And just wherever Jesus goes, he brings life and health and healing. And so we're looking at this book as how can we, wherever we go, bring life and health and healing and bring the gospel. So we're, we're trying to study the life and ministry of Jesus really over this next year. We just want to start off our church and just focus on the person of Jesus. Now, uh, if you are new and you're, and you're trying to figure out, you know, what is this book all about? What's the Gospel of Mark all about? Uh, the Gospel of Mark is the shortest book of the four Gospels. I mention this a lot, but it's just good to know. This is known as the ADD Gospel because Mark just seems to be all over the place. He's kind of jumping from one story to the next, and I like that. If you're like me and you need kind of quick and short, this is Mark. Uh, Mark is kind of jumping from story to story, and we're, here, here's what he's trying to do. He's trying to say, here's who Jesus is. Here's what he did. You decide. Here's what people said about him. Here's how people responded to him, but what do you say? And so Mark actually, out of the four Gospels, focuses really less on the teachings of Jesus, but maybe, but more so on the person and work of Jesus. He's trying to say that it's not so much the Gospel, like what is the content, but the Gospel's a person. The Gospel, the good news is that God became a man. The good news is that God came to earth and sought us out. Jesus is the Gospel. So it's not even just about words or certain words, but it's Jesus himself. And so Mark is actually also called in 1 Peter. Uh, Peter calls him the son, his son in the faith. So it seems that Mark was discipled by Peter. Uh, a lot of people view Mark as Peter's gospel. Like, so when we read some of the stories, I don't know about you, but when you read this, you might see some Peterisms. You might see some emphasis on Simon or Peter in different ways. And I appreciate that perspective. So uh, we're in the gospel of Mark, and here, here's where we're at. Last week, we saw Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners. We saw Jesus hanging out with those who, who you should not be hanging out with in the Pharisees' mind. See, they, they see Jesus, they're looking at Jesus, and in their mind, Jesus was going to come and judge sinners. He was going to condemn sinners. But why is the Messiah eating with sinners? Why is he welcoming sinners? And Jesus said, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I didn't come to call the healthy, I came to call the sick. And if that's why Jesus came, then we want to boast in our sickness. If Jesus came for the sick, then I want to be like, I'm the sickest, Lord. Come for me, right? That's kind of the idea of that. And so Jesus came for the, not the righteous, but the sinners, not the healthy, but the sick. And this is frustrating people. And, and if you've been with us week after week, I kind of love how Mark is doing this. It almost seems like Jesus, what he says and does is intensifying week after week. Because Jesus touched a leper, which is scandalous. You don't touch a leper. No one touches a leper. You're unclean. Jesus eats with sinners. Jesus forgives a paralytic. He forgives someone. Who has the authority to forgive sins? And week after week, Jesus is doing, and this week, what we're going to look at is Jesus actually is going to talk about how he himself is the Lord of the Sabbath. And he's taking a title of God. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. And, and you'll see next week, we won't get to it today, I kind of wanted to, but in chapter 3, verse 6, what Jesus says and does here about the Sabbath day this is the first time the Pharisees seek, it says, to destroy him. Not to silence him. Based off what we're, what we're going to read, based off what we're going to study, the Pharisees want to seek to destroy him. Like, this has to stop. 
This has to stop. He can't claim to be Lord of the Sabbath. Who does he think he is? And so I love the text that we have today. Here's what we're going to look at. Uh, If you want to title this or kind of the text is what I see here is Jesus is greater than religion. Jesus is greater than religion. We're going to see a lot of religious things happening. And Jesus, listen, Jesus didn't come to reform these old practices. He, He came to bring something completely new, and that's himself. Jesus came, yes, to not destroy the law, but to fulfill it, yes. But by so fulfilling it, he brought something new. And so we're going to look at Jesus is greater than religion. Jesus brings something completely new. And I'm so thankful Jesus doesn't just try to clean up the past, but he brings something brand new. And so let's read kind of the the story, uh, the context, then we'll pray and look at it more in depth. So it's Mark chapter 2, verse 18. Remember, Jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners, and he just said, I'd not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Look at verse 18. The disciples of John, so John the Baptist, his disciples, and the Pharisees were fasting. Interesting, they're kind of two different groups of people, but they're fasting together at the same time. Then they came and said to Jesus, why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast, but you and your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the friends of the bridegroom, can the friends of the groom fast while the groom is with them? As long as they have the groom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the, when the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, or else a new piece pulls away from the old, and the tear is made worse. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine bursts the wineskins, the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But the new wine must be put into new wineskins. First topic, about fasting. Keep going. Verse 23, Now it happened that he went through the grain field on the Sabbath, and as they went, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to Jesus, look, why do they do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? But Jesus said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and hungry? He and those with him, this is the story he's talking about from 1 Samuel 21, how he went into the house of God in the days of Abathar, the high priest, and he ate the showbread, which is not lawful to eat except for the priests. And he also gave some to those who were with him. Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for this time. Jesus, we ask that you would just humble our hearts, that you'd speak to us, God, that our focus would not be on me or anything else other than you. Jesus, we just want to look to you. Jesus, we thank you that you did things that were so controversial, and yet it's exactly what we've needed all along, that you brought something new. So we ask that you just speak to our hearts, that God, just the religious tendencies in my mind, in my heart, that God, that would just be removed, and that Jesus, you would just continue to do new things. In your wonderful name, amen. You know, when my wife, Kimber, and I were pregnant, and I know what she's thinking right now, she's like, um, you weren't pregnant, I was pregnant, okay, but she, that's, she always corrects me, but I'm, I repeat, when my wife and I were pregnant uh, with our son, and we were talking about baby names and, and looking at names, and, and that was such a hard dilemma. We actually didn't name our son until like the third day. We are in the hospital. He was born at 1 a.m. We stayed two more days and then named him. Like, they're like, you can go. And I'm like, well, we haven't named our son yet and signed the certificate. It was a very hard battle. Um, but months before, we're talking about baby names, looking at baby names, and, and there were great names. There was names we loved, but we just couldn't name our, our son that. 
And it's because, as you guys know, if you've named kids, it's like, oh, I love this name. You'd share it with your spouse. It's like, oh, I hate that name. Why? This person gave me like a wet willy in third grade, and they kind of ruined that name. And there's always some sort of reason. Like, we, we love the name. She'd present names to me. I would have reasons why it's bad. I'd present names to her. She's like, I dated that name and that name. I'm like, whoa. But there's always reasons why we couldn't <laughs> name our son a certain name. And it's funny how sometimes a good name or a name itself, something good was just ruined. And not by anything bad, not necessarily. It was just kind of ruined in our mind. It was good, but it was ruined. And this happens with a lot of things, right? Think about music or movies. There might be a, mu- a song you love and you sing all the time, but then someone else starts singing it and humming it at work, and you're like, I hate that song. You delete off your iPod. Like, there, there's just, this happens a lot. I remember my buddy in high school, he took me to see a comedy. He took me to see a movie. Um, whatever. He's Napoleon Dynamite, right? He took me to see this comedy, <laughs> and I haven't seen it yet. He saw it for like a third time, and I don't know if you've seen that movie, but it's just stupid dry humor. And he loved the movie. And he was like, dude, you're going to love the movie. And like any time there's something maybe semi-funny, he'd like elbow me. And I'm like, stop. And he's like, yo, yo, watch this part, watch this part. I'm like, what do you think I'm doing? Like, I'm not like, eh. So I'm like, he's like trying to prep me the whole time. And he would pre-laugh like every, every joke. He'd start laughing before the joke. And I, I hated the movie. I just despised the movie. It was not funny to me. It was not enjoyable to me. It was like, he's like, didn't you like it? I'm like, I honestly hated the movie. A couple months later, I go back and watch it. I'm like, oh, that's kind of funny. But he ruined it. Like, he ruined the experience. There was something good, but then he ruined it. And this happens in in so many different areas of life. And I'm bringing this up because this is what's happening to Mark. I want you to think about this. God created fasting. God created the Sabbath day. It was good, but they ruined it. Right? Like, so often, God creates good things, but we ruin it. And And I want you to hear this because God creates something really good, but we make it really difficult. God creates something good, but someone seems to ruin those things. Religious people ruin this thing. Fasting is a good thing. I know that sounds difficult. That's weird, right? It's very hard for me to say it. Fasting is a good thing, but it creates intimacy with God. The Sabbath day is a great thing, right? I want you guys to experience these spiritual disciplines. Here's some really good things, but people tend to ruin them. These Pharisees, these scribes, the religious people of this day ruin the good things God made. And I say this because I really do want you to experience fasting because I want you to experience intimacy with God. Not to be super religious or not to try to put on some, something heavy on you, but I want you to experience, I want you to experience giving to God because there's the thrill of being a part of something bigger than yourself and being generous. I want you to experience the Sabbath day and rest so you can face your week correctly. There are certain spiritual disciplines in the Bible that are good, but people seem to make them bad. They make them harder. They become legalistic about it. They add to it. And it's frustrating Right? For example, uh, there's things that are good and we just make it bad. Like if, I, if there was a birthday cake and it's my son's birthday, birthday cakes are good. You don't need a rule book for birthday cakes. I don't need to be like, son, if you want this cake, here's what you need to do. Eat it with your left hand. You can only eat it between 2.55 and 3 o'clock. No sprinkles. Make sure you chew 55 times per bite. When you eat your food, close your eyes. Like, that's not enjoyable. That's like going to the dentist. Like, you don't need, you need a fork. That's what you need. You don't need rules. You need a fork. The point is, so often there are good things like cake, that we create, that God created, and that we add rules to it, now it's no longer good. And I really want you to see this is what's happening. God created some really good things, but they added to it, and it's no longer good. It's no longer enjoyable. It lost its purpose. It became more of something that was supposed to set you free, something that was supposed to liberate you, something that was supposed to help you once your day-to-day life is now even more so a burden. And this is what Jesus has come to do to end that. Jesus has come to end religion in that sense and to bring something completely new. And so here's a few thoughts I just want to share with you guys. Three things we're going to look at from our text. Three things we see in our text. Here's what we're going to look at. First thing is this. Religion steals joy. 
Religion steals joy, and before you get offended by that, we'll talk about religion. But religion steals joy. Next is Jesus brings joy. And lastly, Jesus is greater than religion. All right, here's what we see from the text. Religion will always steal joy. It will always steal joy. Jesus will always bring joy. Therefore, Jesus is greater than religion. All right, so let's look. Let's look at this text. Let's, let's restudy it. Let's look at it. Because they were just feasting, and now there's a question about fasting. Verse 18, the disciples of John and of the Pharisees were fasting. Then they came and said to Jesus, why do the disciples of John and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? All right, again, religion steals joy. I I want you to see what's happening. Jesus and the disciples are eating a meal with tax collectors with sinners. That's the verse before. And they're like, why are you feasting and having fun when other people are fasting? Just so you know, the scribes and the Pharisees would fast twice a week. And Jesus, and the the Bible doesn't say to fast twice a week. They fast once a year. There's once a year fast on Yom Kippur. That was it. That's the only command to fast, once a year. But they're fasting twice a week. And they're going, why don't you do what we do? Why aren't you fasting like us? You should be doing what we're doing. And here's what I I have to talk about. Because this is something I feel like I need to slow down. Do you know what they're doing here? Something we all do. They're comparing. And there's so much danger in comparing. And religion will always compare. And I honestly, from studying this this week and just praying over this text, and I couldn't, keep, I couldn't move on from verse 18 because I really do believe in my life and other people's lives, religion is, will always compare. And listen, comparison is the thief of joy. I think it's Teddy Roosevelt who actually said that. He said, he said, comparison is the thief of joy. And comparison has some unique dynamics to it. Because comparison can be a negative thing. It can be a jealous thing. Negative meaning, uh, why don't they ever do this? Why don't they ever help? How come she... Or maybe it's a jealous, kind of coveting, envious way. Like, they always seem to get, why does it always work out for them? How come they got that? I have this. And comparison is the thief of joy. And religious people will always compare. They'll always look down and look around and say, you're not doing what I'm doing. How come I'm doing this and you're not? And and, and we see this so often. I see this in my life. We see this in the church's life. And I really do believe that this is keeping us back from growth That comparison will keep us from growth, from health, from maturity. I love how Paul said it in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 12, and you can read the full context later if you want, but he says, when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. When they compare themselves to each other, they're without knowledge, they're without wisdom. There's something incredibly foolish about comparing to each other. And in, in my like, heart right now, which, what I wish I could do and spend more time on, like, I would love to do a sermon right now just on comparison. Like, I would love to spend some time on this because I do think this is something we battle in the church and in our lives. With social media, it's only heightened. It's only heightened to a crazy extreme. Look where, where, look where they travel. Look where they went. Look what they have. How do they have? Can they afford that? Like, we, we just compare all the time and do this so much. And I wrote down just a few thoughts for, for us just to hear and meditate on. We'll throw it up here just so you can see it. Uh, but comparison, listen, comparison makes you bitter. We know that. We've seen that firsthand. Maybe you've experienced that. Maybe you're bitter. Maybe because you're comparing. Comparison makes you self-righteous. Got to talk about that one. Comparison will always make you envious. Comparison is the enemy of growth. As long as you're comparing, you'll stop growing. Comparison is the thief of joy as well. You know, when I, when I read about comparison, when I think about comparison, I, I think of Luke chapter 18. If you guys remember in Luke 18, Jesus gives the story of the Pharisee and again, the tax collector. And I love it. They go to the temple. They both go to the temple and the Pharisees, you know, the Pharisees praying to God out loud, God, thank you so much for, for what you've, like, he's like thanking God for himself. Like, I give a lot. I help people. God, thank you that I'm not like this disgusting tax collector next, next to me. And the tax collector is just crying out, beating his chest, saying, be merciful to me, God, a sinful man. And by this Pharisee's 
self-righteousness, by his, by his really confession of, I don't have sin, he reveals his sin. And he's automatically comparing to this guy, going, I thank you I'm not like him. I thank you I'm better off than him. And by so comparison, he reveals his sin. And Jesus said, no, that man will not walk away justified. The, the Pharisee will not walk away justified. The one who beat his chest and say, God, just be merciful to me, a sinful man. That's the one who walks away justified. And I say, comparison really is the thief of joy. Comparison does make you self-righteous. It's so interesting, right? When, if you've fasted recently or fasted at all, it's funny. When you fast, I, bec- I become so self-righteous when I fast. Because I'm like not eating food and I'm like around people eating food. I'm like, I can't believe the scumbags are eating food. <laughs> like you like look at them like, oh, what a dirtbag. Like they're eating like bacon and hamburger. And like we become so judgmental. Like it's crazy. Like I was eating that like an hour ago, but now I'm not. And now all of a sudden I'm better than them. And it's, it's just crazy how judgmental it makes us. It's crazy how self-righteous it makes us. And rather than just fasting for the Lord, we have to compare it to how other people are not doing what I'm doing. And again, this is religious, and this is comparison, and this will steal your growth, and this will steal, steal your joy, it'll make you self-righteous, and it'll make you bitter, and it does so much. My buddy, it's funny, just in light of this week, is another pastor friend who posted this about comparison. I was laughing because I was studying about comparison. He posted this quote, so I'm like, let me steal this and use it. So good. He posted this week. He said, he's quoting from this guy named John Tyson, and, and he's quoting from another guy. He's quoting from another guy. Um... <laughs> He says, one step toward breaking the spirit of comparison is to respond to God's call on your life rather than living for the expectations of others. Isn't that good? Let's stop really quick there. Idea of why do I feel the pressure to go to this school? Why do I feel the pressure to get this job? My parents make me want, maybe want to do this. Like we have this expectation rather than from God, rather than obeying the call of God, we have to fulfill other people's call in our lives. He says, living for others create what Ronald <laughs> Rollheiser, here we go, another quote, uh, what Ronald Rollheiser calls, a can- listen, a cancerous restlessness. He writes, so much of our own happiness comes from comparing our lives, our friendships, our loves, our commitments, our duties, our bodies, and our sexuality to some idealized and non-Christian vision of things, which falsely assures us that there's heaven on earth. When that happens, and it does, or t- our tensions begin to drive us mad, in this case, to cancerous restlessness. Comparison and contentment just do not mix together. If you are a content person, I, I guarantee you're, you're most likely not comparing yourself to other people. You're not saying, look how far I've gone, look what I've done, look at my accomplishments, I can't believe they haven't done. Usually you're just you're content. It's the way for me, and because I don't want to just talk about the issue of this, here's how I want to write it out, here's how I want to approach this. Because I think, I think for me, it's like, well, what is the, what is the key? The way I just wanted to meditate on and wrote this down for me is contentment in Christ eliminates the need to compare. And I really think that this is kind of like the Philippians 4 and other 1 Timothy 6. I think there's a lot of other areas of scripture that talk about this. But contentment in Christ eliminates the need to compare. When you are so secure in Christ and who he is and what he's done for you and what he says about you and how he says this is your identity and your new creation, when you're so content in Christ, there's no, no more need for me to compare to others. If I know I'm hidden in Christ, my life is hidden with Christ, and your life is hidden with Christ, and I can't get more righteous than Jesus, and you can't get more righteous than Jesus, and in a sense, we're on that same playing field, that I, I'm, a, I'm a sinner saved by grace, and you're a sinner saved by grace, and when you really re- embrace this mindset, it's so freeing to, to compare. You know, you're, not, you're free to have to like, look at other people, and why they have this, and, not, and don't have this, and it's so freeing, and I, I really do believe that a lot of us are just bound to comparison. This haunts us, this will keep you and I from growth. It'll keep you from deep friendships. It'll keep you from enjoying Jesus. And I want to say, like, look at the, look at the Pharisees and, the, and, and John's disciples come to Jesus and go, why are we doing this? Why are those people, but you're not? And I say, as soon as we start to ask those questions, we realize that we're becoming religious. We're starting to compare and think that our righteousness is based off what we do. 
See, religion will always compare. Religion will always put an emphasis on your works. And please hear that. Religion will always put an emphasis on your works. Look what we're doing. Look at our works. And it'll always put an emphasis on works in general. And I think that Christianity is so different because it's not putting an emphasis on works, but it's putting an emphasis on, on Christ's work, on what he has done. And it, that's why it's so freeing. Because no longer what I have to do to be right with God, but it's what God has done for me to be right with him. You see, it's been said this way, and I, I love this. It's a simple way of saying it. Religion says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. That's what religious people say. I do these things, therefore God loves me and accepts me. But Christianity says, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. And, and it really is, it's, you might, it's like a small minor difference. This is life changing. This is life altering. For so long, I tried to obey to be accepted by God. And it was a miserable battle. Because I'd fall short of the law, I'd fall short of doing things over and over, and I'd be like, God, I can't do this, and I wanted to give up, I wanted to throw in the towel on Christianity, and I didn't realize it's what Christ has done for me, not my works, but his work. I'm accepted by Jesus Christ and the work of the cross, therefore I obey. It's the love of Christ that compels me. It's the love of Christ that compels me to want to do things for Jesus, for his name, for his glory. Not, not to get it, not to get his love, but because I have his love. And see, this is what comparison does. Comparison looks at your works and compares to others and goes, they're not as good as me, or they're worse off than me. And this is such a dangerous thing in the church. And I'll say this, it will steal your joy. Religion steals joy. These people don't seem to be having joy. These people seem to be miserable at this point in time. And I love what Jesus now brings and offers. And here's the second point that we're going to look at in verse 19. But the second point is this, Jesus brings joy. And, and I want you to see how Jesus describes his coming. Because I think this is not just like, he's using an illustration, I think, to communicate a powerful truth. Look at verse uh, 19. Jesus said to them, can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the, the bridegroom or the groom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them and they will fast in those days. Here, here's what he's saying. Jesus is saying, hey, I have come as the groom and this is a wedding, and this is a wedding feast and they're not going to fast at my wedding feast. And, and I, I think this is so profound. He's trying to use like, think of like the most joyful thing we can try to communicate. And there's really nothing more joyful in a sense than a groom getting married. And the idea of like your friends and you're invited, you're so excited. For imagine right now, we have a few people who are engaged here getting married, but imagine right now your best friend was getting married. And it's like your best friend's big day, it's their wedding day, you're in the wedding, you're celebrating the wedding, you go to the wedding and they're like, can you believe it's my wedding day? Aren't you stoked? Aren't you ready to party and have a good time? And you're like, no, I'm actually fasting today. You don't do that. You can't, you can't, like you're out of the wedding. You can't fast on your best friend's wedding day. You just don't do that. A wedding is communicating this idea of deep friendship, deep intimacy, deep relationship, deep love. That's what's happening that day. I love weddings for this reason. It's funny, I, I joke with my wife sometimes, because like on our wedding day, when, when she first came out, and I don't know, you played a song from Pride and Prejudice. It was like beautiful. It's like she came from far away, and like this music started playing. I'm like, <laughs> like I just lost it. I'm like crying, and she's like fine. And I'm like, what the heck? I'm like, cry a little bit. It kind of summarizes our relationship. Like, I love you. She's like, keep it together. Um, <laughs> but I remember like for me and, and weddings and just doing some weddings, I love the exchange of vows. and I love what you're hearing. I love what's being said. And there's this idea of just deep commitment to one another, deep friendship to one another, deep relationship to one another. And here's the idea. A relationship with God is just that. It's relationship with God. It's deep friendship. It's deep intimacy. It's, it's just deep connection. This is not some religious thing. It's like, just like Jesus says, this is like a wedding. There's deep intimacy and friendship and joy happening at a wedding. I love how Billy Sunday, this, this evangelist said it. He says, uh, if you have no joy, there's a leak in your Christianity somewhere. If there's no joy, there's something leaking. There's something wrong. Now, does that mean that your life's going to always be perfect and you won't have trial? Of course not. But it means in spite of my trials, in spite of my circumstances, I can still have a joy that surpasses all of that. 
You know, I love the verse in Habakkuk, in Habakkuk, I think, too. It talks about, though there's no grapes, and though there's no wine, and though there's no, there's no this, yet I will rejoice. That's joy. Though there's none of this happening, though there's none of, the circumstances look terrible, yet I will rejoice. Joy is a choice. And I, and I want you to see that there is something about Jesus where he describes our relationship as joy. Religion stole the, sucked the life out of the air. Why aren't you fasting? And Jesus is like, oh, we're at a party right now. Jesus is like, this is what it's like. I, uh, again, I quoted last, night, uh, last week to you guys a guy named Bonhoeffer. He, he was a, a Lutheran pastor who was murdered, who was hung in, during World War II in Nazi Germany for being a spy. Um, and this guy was an awesome man. And he, he said this about joy. He says, uh, God will not tolerate the unfestive, joyless manner in which we eat our bread with sighs of groaning, with pompous, self-important busyness, or even with shame. Though the daily meal God is calling us to rejoice, to celebrate in the midst of our working day. Just didn't enjoy God. Just enjoy God. If we could summarize Christianity, can we say enjoy God forever? Just enjoy him. There's something about this. There's something that's so freeing about this. For, for so long, Christianity wasn't just about enjoying God to me. It was about what I had to do to make sure I'm right with God. And can I tell you, God wants to free you from that. God, God, God honestly had to free me from that. It's not about what I have to do to be right with God. God paid the way. God paved the way. God made the way. God is the way. And I can just enjoy him. I don't have to try to work for it. You know, it's, it's terrible when you feel like in a relationship, like you have to work for someone's love or work for someone's respect. God doesn't do that. God's like, you have it. You don't have to work for it. You have it. And this just brings so much joy. I love how C.S. Lewis said it. It's a famous quote, but he goes, joy is the serious business of heaven. That's what joy is. It's the serious business of heaven. You know, can I tell you guys, if you don't have joy right now in Christ, if you're like, but I don't enjoy him, I'm not going to be like, try harder, try harder, and you'll have joy. Do you know where joy comes from? Joy comes from good news. And if you think about where joy comes from, it's like, it's someone saying, hey, good news, we're pregnant. Good news, I got this job. Good news, our, this house was sold for really cheap. Like, good news, and you're like, you have joy from good news. And understand that's what Jesus said, I've come to bring good news. Good news, it is finished. Good news, I'm going to be faithful to finish what I've started in you. Good news. And that's where joy comes from. And if there's this lack of joy, remind yourself of this good news. There's some really good news that the Bible says about what we have in Christ. And our treasures in heaven. And we're seated in the heavenly places. We have some good news. See, again, religion will steal joy. Jesus is here to bring it. And I'm so thankful for that. And then he says something in verse 20 that's interesting, right? Because he goes, but there's going to be a time to fast. Look at verse 20. Verse 20, uh, he says, but the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. This is maybe, they most Bible scholars believe, like the first reference specifically to the cross. Jesus is like, hey, we're, we're fasting, we're partying, but I'm going to be taken away. And the disciples would not know at this point in time, like, what is he talking about? There's this idea that he's going to the cross, but another thought is, we're going to be separated from Jesus for a while. Jesus is in heaven, but one day we will be reunited with him. So here's, here's what I'm trying to bring up. There is still a need to fast. <laughs> in case you thought like, oh, this sermon's great. I don't have to fast. No, that's not what he's saying. We're in that season where we're, our groom is in heaven, and one day we will be with him. And, and you know what? But until then, there's still a need to fast. And so let's talk about fasting. You're like, no, I thought you were going to skip that. Let's talk about fasting for a little bit. Because it's, it's so needed to, to, to address this and think about this. And you could say simply fasting could be put as simple as abstaining from food. I think that's, that's fair. I think that, that, that is definitely biblical. It's abstaining from food. But I think it's not limited to that. And I think it's much more than that. Here's one definition of, of fasting. Fasting is giving up a daily activity to focus on an eternal reality. So fasting might be I'm giving up this daily routine, this daily thing to focus on something eternal. And this is hard for me. Let me just stop here. This is out of all the spiritual disciplines. There's a lot of spiritual disciplines. And let me even just say this, because sometimes spiritual disciplines get a, a bad name. 
Spiritual disciplines like fasting, like praying, like time in the word, like giving, spiritual disciplines are very difficult. It's hard to do, and it's hard to understand the val- it's hard to understand the value of maybe meditation and prayer, or understand the value of giving, or understand the value of rest. It's it's hard sometimes, and I think sometimes spiritual disciplines become this way in which we try to get God. But I, again, I, I basically have said it: spiritual disciplines are not a way to get God, but enjoy Him. And I really hope you can hear that. Fasting is not a way to get God. It's not make God like, oh my gosh, you're fasting. What's your request? You get three wishes. Like that's not a way to get God. Like that's not how we get something from Him. Fasting is simply a way to enjoy Him. You know, giving is a way to enjoy him. Sabbath rest is a way to enjoy him. Spiritual disciplines are ways to just enjoy God. Enjoy who he is and what he's done. We're made in his image and we can be quiet and slow. And, like, there's something about this and I love this. So fasting, I'll be honest, this is probably the harder discipline for me. Like once my, my son was born, I'm like, I just want to like eat. I don't know. I don't wanna, like, I'm just like, I want to eat. I want to eat with him. I want to like, This is probably one of the harder things to practice. And yet this is here to bring us greater joy and greater intimacy. And so just a few thoughts about fasting. If you've never really spent time fasting or thinking about fasting or what Jesus says about fasting, because there's other verses we'll read later about fasting and Jesus talks about this, you know, casting out a demon. He's like, this kind cannot come out without prayer and fasting. There's something really unique about fasting. Fasting, there's, I think there's power attached to fasting. I think sometimes we as Christians maybe downplay it, but I think there's really something powerful connected to fasting. So a few thoughts about fasting. Uh, first, and I, this is food for thought. Never mind. Uh, Sorry, sorry about that fasting joke. Uh, food for thought. All right, sorry. <laughs> we'll move on. Um, that didn't make sense anyways. Fasting is more about replacing than abstaining. Do we know this? This one's good. Fasting is more about replacing than abstaining. I used to, when I was like in high school or like even after, like when I was fasting, I'd be like, okay, don't eat food. Don't eat. My goal of the day was like, don't eat food. Like food and like run. Like it's just like about abstaining. But fasting is more so than abstaining, but it's replacing. I remember like there'd be times I'd be fasting, like I can't, I can't focus. This is really hard. Let me watch TV. No, that's like not the point of fasting. Like this is, I'm going to fast today. So I'm just going to sit down and watch Netflix for 12 hours and then hopefully the day's over. It'll be better. It's not about abstaining. It's about replacing it though with something more and something greater. And what are some of those things? And we'll talk about that. This is about replacing. Here's the next thought. Fasting is so you can intentionally pray. Intentionally pray. There's actually a time where husbands and wives are encouraged to fast for a period of time and to come back together sexually. There's actually encouraged that maybe you need to be in specific prayer about something. Maybe there's something specific. You're like, I, I need great clarity. I need great, I need no distractions. It is weird. I, maybe you agree, but when you eat a big meal, my first desire is not to go home and like pray. <laughs> my first is like, I need a nap. Like there's something about just food that maybe ca- takes our focus and energy away from the Lord. So fasting brings it back to the Lord to intentionally pray, to hear, to be open. Number, we'll just keep going through these quickly. Uh, fast, we fast to serve others. We fast to serve others. If you would write down Isaiah 58, I think Isaiah 58 is probably the best chapter on fasting. And he says, hey, the food you're going to use, t- t- the food you're going to eat that day, buy someone else's food, help someone else out. Instead of, you know, that, that day you're fasting, clothe those who are naked, help those who are oppressed. You know, when you practice this, there's been a couple of times where we've been specific about like, I'm not just fasting today and not going to watch TV or not going to not eat food. It's like, okay, how can we love and serve others today? And God's talking about fasting. Like, please fast and do this when you fast. Fasting not necessarily isn't about you. It's going, oh my gosh, I'm not eating. I'm so hungry. And there's people like this all around me like that. And fasting awakens your eyes to other people's needs. There's something really powerful about that. Like I'm hungry, but there's people down the street who experience that a lot. The, the money I was going to spend on me, let me spend on them today. It's not just about being quiet and being alone and being away from everyone and everything. It's not that. Uh, keep going with this. Fasting cultivates a dependency on God. Does it not do this? What did Jesus say? Man should not live by bread alone, 
but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. There's this idea that fasting cultivates this, this great dependency on God, like, God, I need you. I'm hungry. God, I really need you. I, 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 there's a, there's, it kind of creates a stir of like, I realize food does not meet my every need. Food is not the answer. It's weird how food can become an idol. It's weird how food can become a safety blanket. It can be all those things, and you realize when you're stopping food, you go, this is not my idol, this is not my God, but you are. And it creates a dependency on God. Keep going. Uh, fasting, here's my favorite one. Fasting shows your flesh who's boss. All right, and I want you to think about this. This is, this is so profound and so biblical, and this is so true. When you're fasting, here, does anyone else agree when you're fasting, your body is, is screaming, feed me. It's like, feed me. And you're like, everything is like, your brain just like, it's like on red alert. Like, I don't know I'm fasting. I'm just like, I feel like you don't look at me that day. I'm just like a mess. I need to, I'm trying to like pull myself together better. But like, my body's just constantly crying out, feed me, feed me, food, go get it. And like, I see it, I'm like, yes. But it, your body's crying out, but here's what you're doing. You're fasting. You're saying, no flesh, you don't tell me what to do. I tell you what to do. No flesh, you don't control me. I control you. And this teaches such a greater truth. Because when you're alone and your flesh is crying out saying, click this, do this, drink this, go here, do this. You're saying, no flesh, you don't control me, I control you. Fasting is, you're doing something physical, but it's speaking of something so much more spiritual and eternal. It, it's, it is delayed gratification in a, in a greater way, I think. There, there's just something really unique about it. Your flesh usually has control over you. Do this, drink this, get this coffee, drink. And you're saying, no, 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 you don't control me. And fasting shows, you don't control me, I control you. And that's what, again, when our flesh is hungry and crying out and saying, give in, give in, do this, you're saying, mm -mm, you don't control me, I control you. Fasting shows your, your flesh who's boss. Again, it is like delayed. I, you ever guys go to a Mexican food restaurant and they bring out the chips and you're like, oh my gosh, these chips are the best. And you're just like, eat chips and chips. Like, what do you want for dinner? You're like, I'm good. I, like, I don't need anything. I think sometimes, like, we, the point of sometimes my wife and I have to do this, like, I'll eat one or I won't have chips because I want to enjoy the meal. Like, I don't want to miss out on the flottas because I like flottas. Like, I don't want to miss out on the tamale. I don't want to miss out on that. I'm going to say no to this for something greater, right? It's fasting not that. I'm going to say no to this for something much, much greater. The next thought, it's kind of similar to this, actually, really same thing. Fasting is choosing to abstain from something good in the short term for the sake of enjoying something more in the long term. I'm choosing to abstain from this in the short term because I want to enjoy this way more in the long term. Because I, I know God has some, I'm not going to give in to my flesh immediately. There's something more for me to experience. And so here's the practical challenge for us. Fast. <laughs> I don't know what that looks like. I don't know if that's social media. I don't know if that's a meal. I don't know if that's a day. I don't know if that's three days. I don't know if you can do 40 days. God be with you. I have no idea what that looks like. But how, does that, how do we play that out in our lives? I would ask you guys, this would be a really good two-week period of fast for us as a church that we're coming up into a couple really big weeks where people are more inclined to, to go to church or people are more inclined on Good Friday or Easter and they might be open to the gospel or we're doing an outreach next Saturday. I'd be asking you guys, would you please fast maybe one meal? Would you, would you just take that to pray, call upon the Lord? Say, God, pour out your spirit. Let this be more than an event. Save people, reach people. God, reach people on Good Friday. Let them see just the beauty of the cross, the great, the great cost of the cross. Like I'm gonna ask that you guys, maybe this, in the next two weeks, that could be one thing. That could be several things you fast from. That could just be food. I don't know. But I'd say this would be a great time for us as a church to slow down and fast, right? I, I really can't think of a better two-week frame to slow down and fast than this two-week frame. And so fa Jesus is like, there's a point in time to fast. There, there, it's, not, it's not like it's done with. You know, every time we fast too, kind of, it reminds us of the day we'll be with Jesus in heaven and eating a meal with him. Every time we say no to a meal, it's like one day I'll have that real meal. I'll have that good meal, that true meal with Jesus. As he said, sitting down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, sitting down with the saints of old and enjoying a meal with them and with Jesus, it reminds us of a greater meal. Amen? 
So we see that now. Here's the next thought. Jesus again brings joy, but look at verse 21 and 22. Jesus is doing something completely new. He's doing something completely new. Verse 21. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, or else the new piece pulls away from the old, and the tear is made worse. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine bursts the wineskins, the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined, but the new wine must be put into new wineskins. What is he talking about? What is he saying? Let me share with you. He's giving an analogy, two analogies to communicate a really powerful truth. The analogies are an unshrunk cloth and bursted wine, spilled wine. And the idea, again, as, as he just said, if you had a hole in your jeans, and they're, they're jeans you had for a long time, and you wash and wash and wash, and they can't shrink anymore, and you take a new patch, maybe for some reason you want to cover up the holes in your jeans. I don't know. But you, you cover the hole in your jean with a new patch, and it's never been washed before. Eventually, it might tear and rip away because it's going to shrink, but everything else is going to stay the same. It's going to pull away and make the, the tear worse. Jesus is like, I did not come to patch things. Just to be really clear. I did not come to patch things up. Next, the idea of wineskin. And you think about the wine skin. So wine would a lot of times be in like goat skin or, or, or animal skin in some way. And the idea is wine would ferment with the skin. So as the wine fermented and the gases expanded, that new animal skin would grow and grow and grow with it. But if you put new wine into it, it that needed to ferment all over again, and it had no more room to grow. And so it burst. So you lose the wine skin, you lose the wine. And, and here's the idea Jesus is saying. I'm not coming to patch things up. I'm not coming to partially do something or fulfill something, I'm coming to make things new. And I, and I want us to hear this and see this, because this is powerful. I'm so thankful that Jesus does not just patch things up or try to mix things together. That Jesus says, let's just, I'm not here to reform religion. I'm here to bring something completely new. And I'm so thankful Jesus has not come to make a better version of me, but a new me. Is that not the gospel? Jesus does not make a better version of you. He's like, ah, we need a new one. <laughs> I need to be new. And that's what he does for us. He makes a new version. And this is a new thing that God's doing. And you're like, wait, wait a second, what about the law? Jesus didn't come to destroy the law, he said that, but he came to fulfill it. And by so fulfilling the law, he brought something new. Romans 7 talks about being married to another, to Jesus Christ himself, this new person, this new work, this new covenant, this new covenant of grace. It is something completely new. And I, I want to throw the verses up because I love talking to Jewish people about Jesus being the Messiah. And I love showing, and I, I know they know this verse, but I love this, this prophecy in Jeremiah 31, 31. We'll throw it up here. And I'll read it here. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make, and circle the word new, I will make a new covenant, if you turned there, maybe not, uh, with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their sin, and I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Jesus is like, I'm going to do something new. The old Jeremiah, Old Testament prophecies, God's going to do something new, and that is fulfilled in Jesus. That Jesus is not like, let me just give you a new, let me patch this up, or let me just put some new wine in something old. He's like, I need new wine for new wineskins. I need to do something completely new. And I'm so thankful again that as Isaiah 61 says, that he's clothed us with the robe of righteousness. It's not like he takes my old garments and washes them. He's like, let me give you a new robe. Let me cover you in my righteousness. I'm doing something new here. And so Jesus is doing something completely new. Not to reform religion, not to patch things up, but to do something new. And again, the old wine or the, the new wine could not be mixed with old wineskins. And I think there's something about this, that we cannot mix Jesus just into our lives. And please hear that. I cannot mix Jesus into my materialism. 
into your narcissism, into your whatever that is. You can't mix Jesus with your lifestyle. He, he needs to do something completely new. He's like, I'm not going to be mixed in with some old thing. I'm not going to be put into some old crusty wineskin. I need a new one. And I think Jesus is like, I want to do something new in your life. And this is what he came to do. He doesn't make you better. He makes you new. <laughs> Praise God for that. Amen? And then, so G- again, religion steals joy. Jesus is, brings joy. Therefore, last point, look at verse 23. We're going to study this. Jesus is greater than religion. Amen? Jesus is so much greater than religion. Look at verse 23. Now it happened when he went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, as they went with his disciples, began to pluck the heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to Jesus, look, why do they do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Okay, I remember reading the story as a little kid, and I'm like, wait, they're just stealing? Like, <laughs> can they just steal grain? Okay, that's not what's happening. Uh, there was a law in the Old Testament that if you owned land, you would, you would leave, so if you left, you would glean once, you couldn't glo- glean and reap or harvest twice. So there'd be some stuff left over, and it's for the people to walk through and take. So this is okay, this is, le- this is legal, this is allowed to do. So they're walking through the grain fields collecting food, and it's the Sabbath day. And they would basically kind of like take the heads of the grain, they'd rub in their hands, and they kind of just get some weird food, and they'd eat it. And the Pharisees somehow are in the grain fields. <laughs> I don't know. I <laughs> love that. Like, it's not lawful to do this on the Sabbath day, but it is lawful to spy and creep on people on the Sabbath day for some reason. So they're with Jesus in the field, creeping, watching what's going on, and they're going, hey, you can't do that. Your disciples, why are they doing that? And here's what I want you to see. There is the law in the Old Testament, and there is the oral law that Jews still have today, and they would elevate that to some level like Scripture. So they have something called the Halakha, and about the Sabbath specifically, there is 39 things you could not do on the Sabbath. And you can read this, and it's interesting. Like, and they would take something God created, like the Sabbath, a beautiful, awesome idea. Think about 4,000 years ago, 6,000 years ago. Think about ancient Egypt. Think about this idea of you work all day, seven days a week. Everyone worked. No one had a day off. God invented a day off. Thank you, God, for inventing a day off. God's like, no, you're going to be my people because you're going to work six days and rest on one just like I did with creation. So God, God and this, this really was kind of what identified the Jews as being different and unique from all their people groups. Not everyone had a Sabbath. This was like their baby. This was their thing. This made them Jewish. Like, we have a Sabbath. We invented this idea of a day off. Like, this was their thing, and it was supposed to be joyful, but it's turned into bitterness. And here's, there's weird laws. Like, literally, they could not spit on the Sabbath because it might roll in dirt, and if it rolled in dirt, that'd be plowing the field. Like, that's, that's like how they, they just took this to such crazy extremes that they could not tie a knot, but a woman could tie a knot around her girdle, so they'd try to get water from a well, and they'd use her. They would just, it's so bizarre how they had to try to get around things because they realized, okay, we've we got to not work, so let's create these rules to not work, but then they end up working more and not really resting and enjoying the true meaning of the Sabbath. And they missed out on the true joy and meaning of the Sabbath. So let's, like, even look back at this. The first time we see this commanded, really— First time we see is in Genesis with God resting, but we see this commanded in Exodus chapter 20. It's the fourth commandment. I mean, the Sabbath day is the fourth of the Ten Commandments. Here's the verse, Exodus 20, verse 4, and just hear the heart of it. Exodus 20, verse 4, it says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath. It's of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is within them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. This was supposed to be a really good, refreshing thing. This was supposed to be like, I want you just to enjoy me. Don't feel the stress to work. Relax, take a break. And then they create the holika, whatever it's called, and they create this thing, now the Sabbath day, so it's a crazy burden that no man could bear. That they would find ways to get around it, 
They'd be crafty with it. They would build little houses far away and walk a certain amount of steps from their house because like, they can't go past this many. St-. They would just do so many insane things to try to avoid the rules they placed on themselves. And they missed the point of this. And I want you to even see this. I love how Exodus 20 goes back and says, look at God and how he rested. Now, here's the thought that we have to ask. Was God tired? No. What's the idea of resting then? Why did he need to rest? The, the idea of rest is, is saying, and it's really communicating this, this truth that you're so content and so happy with your work, you don't have to add to it. You, you're, you're done. You're good. I can enjoy it. It's remember how God created everything and goes, and it's good, and it's good, and it's good. And then it says, it's very good, and he rested. Sometimes our work, we're not content with it. We want to add to it. There's always something to do. And we don't really enjoy true rest because there's always something to do. Rather than looking at God and going, I know I gave my all. I know I gave everything to it. And I can now step away from it. And, and, and it's going to be okay. That the earth is not going to stop revolving if I don't work for one day. That God is still in control. And it's to remind them, it was to remind them several things. One being, you can rest and things are still going to happen. Guys, how many of you just don't believe that? I don't know if I always believe that. I can rest and God will still make things happen. You can rest and things will still happen. I want to share with you just two little mindsets that I think are powerful when it comes to the Sabbath. Just two mindsets. And please write this down and, and just hear this. Because I think a lot of us, let's be honest, a lot of us are workaholics. A lot of us go really hard a lot. We live in the most unique generation where you can work anywhere and that means you work everywhere. We just live in a really unique time. Like we, we, we find our identity, back then people would find their identity in their families and community and their parents. We find our identity in our work. What do you do? It's the first question. What do you do? What do you do for a living? Well, I do this. Well, I don't do, I don't do that. Like we, we find our meaning and our value in our work. And so for us, this, is, this really is maybe for many, many of us, a God. You're like, don't talk about my work. <laughs> like I, lo- I will defend my work because that's my God. And, and I think God's saying, slow down. And here's two things. And this is, I think, for me as well. My work does not define me. Christ defines me. If you can remember one thing, your work does not define you. This is not make you, you're not valuable because you make a lot of money. You're not valuable because a lot of people report to you. Your work does not define you. When you're on your deathbed, no one's going to be like, man, your work, by the way, like, you're going to be with your family and friends, those you've loved and poured into, your work does not define you, Christ defines you. And, and here's another mindset. I'm not the one who's meeting my needs or my family needs, God is the one. You know, you know what the Sabbath reminds you of? It reminds me of that. That I'm not the one who's ultimately responsible to provide for me and my family, God is the one. Just taking one day off, God reminds me, you can relax and you can rest and I'm still in control and I'll still bring a harvest. And, and I love how God made them rest. God made the land rest. There's just something about like, just rest. I'm still gonna provide. I'm still gonna be faithful. You know, we've been in a busy season. I'll be honest, I confess my sins. We've been in a busy season of life from working a few different jobs the last several months still, you know, and I recently just got Mondays off from my current job. And like, I thought you'd do this. I do this, but I also work at other places, you know. And God has been so good to kind of remind me the last few Mondays, like, this is what you need. You need rest in me. I just need to enjoy him. Sabbath is not even about, like, now I can just relax and watch Netflix. Sabbath is about just enjoying the Lord. It's about me resting in him. I'd say, guys, let's just enjoy the Lord. Whether it's fasting or Sabbath, Jesus is trying to say, you've missed the point. You've missed the point of fasting two days a week, burdensome. You think you're good with God because you fast. You missed the point of Sabbath because, look it, you're, 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 don't do anything. You, you have these crazy 39 extra rules to the Sabbath day that God created. So again, Jesus did not break the law of God. He broke their law. Jesus did not sin in this moment, just so you know. There's not like, oh, Jesus, you, you blew it. Nope. And it doesn't even say he ate, by the way. It says his disciples. 
But there's just some, there's something that Jesus is showing us. You've missed the point of this, and I want to. I've come to show you true rest. I've come to be the real rest. I'm here. What your heart is craving and longing for, and I, I can't wait to get to what he says. But look how Jesus now defines it. Jesus, is like, let me give you a little story. And I love when Jesus quotes from the Old Testament, Testament, and it makes me want to go back and read the Old Testament. So I encourage you to do that. But in verse 25, Jesus said, "Have you never read what David did when he was in the need and hungry, and he and those with him? How he went to the house of God. He went to the temple in the days of Abathar, the high priest, and he ate the showbread, which is not." lawful to eat except for the priests and also uh, and also gave some to those who are with him. Jesus is like, wait, you think what I'm doing is wrong? You think what the disciples are doing are wrong? There's a command in the Bible that only the bread in the temple, there's 12 loaves of bread representing the 12 tribes of Israel, that the bread would stay there for one week in the temple. At the end of the week, they replaced it with new bread. David's running from Saul. Saul lost his mind. David's running from Saul. David's anointed king, but he's not king yet, which parallels what Jesus is doing. He's anointed king, but not king yet. And so David goes in the temple, and there's these 12 loaves. And he asks the priest, what do you got to eat? And he goes, I have the loaves. And the priest goes, are you guys pure? Like, you're not, you're not messing around. There's a sin in your life. And the priest's like, you know what? Here, eat the bread. And he feeds them, right? And that goes against the law. And you're like, well, David, and, and Jesus is trying to say, listen, if God doesn't condemn that, would he condemn this? And, and there's a couple things I want you to see. David broke the ceremonial law, not the moral law. And, there, and there's something about that, that, and here's kind of the thought I think that's important for all of us to, to see, is that here's the idea. Human need is more important than religious ritual. That God cares more about human need than religious ritual. God's like, you're hungry, you need food, eat. And this was the ceremonial law, not the moral law. God never does this with the commandment on adultery. Not like, oh, you really want to commit adultery? Okay, go for it. You, you can do that. It's not like he does that with idolatry. He doesn't do that with any other. That's the moral law. But the ceremonial law, he goes, human need trumps this at this point in time. And Jesus is saying, and that was a command, and I'm not breaking the law, I'm breaking your law. So if, if David wasn't condemned, why are you condemning me? And Jesus is using the scripture to, to just, in a sense, to say, you're in the wrong. You, you don't understand what here. And I love what Jesus ultimately does, because then it's like the power one-two punch. And look at verse 27 and verse 28. He said to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. And I, I need us to hear this. God didn't create the Sabbath day and be like, no, I need man to fulfill it right? God's like, let's create the Sabbath day, and now I need mankind who can really meet the needs of the Sabbath. God created man, and God goes, I'm going to create Sabbath for man. And again, it's not for Jews. It's not for Christians. Notice it says the Sabbath was made for man. All of us need this. This is something we all need. We all need rest. And this is something I think we've got to acknowledge. Just because we take a day off doesn't mean we rested. Just because you go on vacation, how many of you go on vacation and go, I need another vacation? Everyone, everyone does that. Because why? You didn't rest the way God intended us to rest. We come back wiped out and exhausted. And what is that? There's a deeper rest we are looking for. There's a rest that cannot be satisfied even with one day off. But there's, there's two thoughts to this. One is you do need a Sabbath. One is practically have a Sabbath day. I really do believe. Like have a day where you can just enjoy the Lord. Now Colossians says this. Colossians says one man esteems one day by the rest. One man esteems all the days the same. The idea is this. It's not so much about the day, but it's about where and who our rest comes from. That Jesus is our Sabbath. That because of what Jesus has done, he is Sabbath. He is rest. He frees me from this idea of working to please God. Jesus himself is the Sabbath. I'm so thankful for that. That Jesus said, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm the one who's over this. I'm the creator of this. I invented this. Do you know how scandalous this would have been to them? Like, think about this. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. Who do you think you are? God rests on the, sab- on the seventh day when he created everything. He goes, yep, I did. Like, he is the Lord of the Sabbath. He's over the Sabbath. And I, I want you to catch these little phrases because this is, this is what causes, if you look at chapter 3, verse 6, like we want to destroy him because now he's going to heal a man on the Sabbath. Next week, we'll talk about that. 
But it's this idea that Jesus says and does things. They go, you have no right to say that. It's cr- I love when Jesus in Luke 10, he just says little phrases. They're like, wait, what did you say? He's like, I remember when a Satan fell from heaven. Like, wait, hold on. Wait, did you just say you remember when Satan <laughs> fell from heaven? He goes, I always send you prophets and sages, and you always reject them. He goes, wait, you send us prophets and sages? Like, Jesus always throws in these little things where he's like, yes, I'm not just a prophet. I'm the sender of prophets. And Jesus is like, I'm not just here to talk to you about the Sabbath. I am the Sabbath rest. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. And I love that Jesus is trying to redefine these things to them and redefine it to us. Can I tell you, Hebrews chapter 4, when I was like 18 years old, I was reading through Hebrews, and it was so life-changing because it talked about the children of Israel being in the wilderness, wandering, wandering, exhausted, 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 never able to enter the promised land. And then Hebrews, the writer says, hey, you can enter in though. You can rest. They didn't believe God. That's why they didn't rest. They didn't believe God. That's why they didn't rest. But you can believe and you can rest. And Hebrews 4, 9, we'll throw the verse up. The author says, there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work just as God did from his. Here's this idea. The Sabbath rest speaks of a greater rest. There is this idea that I feel like I still need to work for God. Work to make God love me. That I need to work to be right with God. And the idea is, for anyone who enters God's rest, also rests from his work. You can rest from your work. I can rest from my work. That there's nothing I can do to make God love me more. I love when the Pharisees and, and people in John chapter 6 come to Jesus and say, Jesus, what are the works we must do to have eternal life? Jesus says, this is the work, singular, you must do. Believe on me whom the Father has sent. The work was believing in Jesus. Jesus is the work. Jesus is the rest. That's why on the cross, Jesus can say, it is finished. What is finished? The work to be right with God, the work to be, to do these things where God is say, I love you and you're accepted and you can enter in. Jesus did that work. He is the Sabbath. I would say if you're not at rest, and even if you take a day off, it doesn't mean you're going to be at rest. It does not mean you're going to be at rest unless Jesus is your Sabbath rest. You could take a million days off in a row and still not be at rest. Your heart will still be wrestling in discontent because your heart was made to rest in God. That's what my heart was made for. That's what your heart was made for. He is the true Sabbath rest. One man might esteem one day above the rest. One man might esteem all the days the same because Jesus is the Sabbath rest. Every day can be a Sabbath. Every day can be a Sabbath rest because of what Jesus Christ has done. My heart doesn't need to work for God. And now God, I love you more now because you fasted and you took this day off. It's like he is that rest. He is that satisfier of of the soul. He's the one who meets, I shall not live by bread alone, but by his word. He wants to fill that. He wants to meet that. Amen? I'm so thankful Jesus did not come to reform religion, but to bring something new. I'm so thankful to say, hey, guess what? I'm the Lord of this. I can tell you how it goes. Again, religion will steal your joy. It stole my joy for a long time, trying to do things to make God love me more. And I had to enter into his rest. I had to say, Jesus, your work on the cross was enough. Let me believe that. Do you believe his work on the cross was enough? Or are you still trying to do something else? His work on the cross was enough, so rest. Believe that. Put your faith and trust in him. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. He will give you rest where you cannot get rest from. He will give you rest where the Sabbath cannot give you rest from. He's the Lord of that. Amen? I'm going to pray for you guys. And here's what we're going to do, actually. I'm going to pray for you. We're just going to end a little early, not with worship. And we're going to share some things coming up because there's a couple things coming up the next two weeks. So we're going to end. I'm going to pray. I'm going to call my wife up. She's going to share some things with you guys. Um, and then even at the end, we, we, got, this is, we just got some extra like food and donuts because we want to slow down and just kind of hang and just enjoy each other's company and get refreshed, all right? So let's just pray, and then we're going to just close with some thoughts. Father, we just thank you for this time. Just be our rest, God. I know my heart can be busy. I know my mind can be busy. But Jesus, we thank you that you are that perfect peace. 
So Lord, for everyone and anyone in this room that's just discontent, not at peace, not at rest, Jesus, we ask that we could enter into the Sabbath, Sabbath rest that you talk about in Hebrews. Enter into the fact that you are our rest. God, let our heart be at peace. Let us not compare. Let us not try to attain something. God, let us just be content in our identity in you. So we thank you, Jesus. We ask that you just be here now in your wonderful name. Amen.